Thanks for listening to a podcast from WSUM. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not reflect the views of WSUM, the University of Wisconsin-Madison, or its Board of Regents. Welcome back to the Abolitionist Roundtable, the Madison Journal of Literary Criticism-affiliated podcast where dedicated study group members, aka passionate students, activists, trailblazers, and abolitionists sit down to discuss issues tied to social justice following corresponding, corresponding weekly MJLC study group meetings. This semester, fall 2023, each episode of the Abolitionist Roundtable and MJLC study group will examine various forms of resistance, which is our theme, obviously, for the semester. Uh, today's meeting centers on like art and music, kind of like the role that these creative endeavors play as a form of resistance itself and how that kind of creative process is inherently abolitionist. Uh, before we begin, we just wanted to like introduce our roundtable members today. Uh, guests, if you don't mind, can you share your name, pronouns if you're comfortable, year in school, majors, uh, affiliation with MJLC, and a piece of art or music that you think kind of like embodies resistance and real quick just like a one sentence explanation why because we'll get we'll get into that later uh i can lead off so uh my name is nate uh pronouns are he him i'm a sophomore here at uw uh my major is political science i am a study group member of mjlc and the heart part five for me is what i think of when i think of resistance because it's Kendrick Lamar's song sort of addressing how he feels uh, detached from where he grew up, and it's re he's resisting by saying, like, I want to have my cake and eat it too. I want to be connected to the hood while being in this affluent circumstance. It's really interesting. So, yeah. All right, um, I'm Shelby. Uh, my pronouns are she, her. Um, I'm a junior this year, and my major is international studies. Um, and then this is actually my first year at the MJLC, so it's exciting. And this is my first podcast too. Woo. And then hey, um, Shelby, <laughs> my um, example I came up with is "We Didn't Start the Fire" by Elton John, as well as "We Didn't Start the Fire um, Part Two by Fall Out Boy, because um, it just oh, goes I through. love Fall Out Boy. Me too. <laughs> Um, anyway, so I think it just goes through the history throughout the years and brings up a lot of important forms of resistance and events and um, does it kind of in a more neutral type of tone. And, you know, in the chorus, I think there's a line that talks about just how we didn't start the fire, but like it's our job to kind of fix it. So, Absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, I'm Maria. Um, my pronouns are she, her. I'm a senior this year, which is terrifying. Um, I'm majoring in English literature and philosophy. Um, I'm one of the e-board members um, of the MJLC, and uh, I'm going to use a movie because the last two people did songs, but I think the latest Spider-Man movie with Tom Holland, um, that whole idea of like the Green Goblin and all these other villains, instead of like being punitive towards them, this whole approach, sorry, spoiler, of like healing them and taking care of them, I thought that was very abolitionist by nature, just kind of focusing on rehabilitation and taking care of harm and taking care of those who cause harm and those who are affected by harm, instead of being punitive, was really radical for Marvel slash Disney. I was really surprised by it. That was a long one sentence, but thank you. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> my name is Cree. Uh, my pronouns are he, him. I'm a senior also. I'm a graphic design major. I'm on the e-board for MJLC doing graphic design, graphics and layout. And uh, the song I kind of, in the moment, was like, oh, uh, 25 and Wasting Time by Vincent Neal Emerson, just because it's kind of a goofy country song, but it's just about like kind of that just 
existence and hanging out, one of the lines is like, he quits his job, I ain't gonna let him have my days, and just, I don't know, just the existence of it and not necessarily, existence as resistance, I guess. Sure, absolutely. That's, yeah. yeah um, first thing to consider, kind of jumping right into it, is kind of how these artistic forms themselves are varied in terms of like existence and intention. How is art as a medium like a form of resistance or an exhibition of those forms of resistance? I know art as a medium contains multiple different mediums, but just art in kind of its own explanation, like how does that tie to resistance for you all? For me, I always think of art as expression, expression between an artist and a audience, someone who perceives that art. And so I, I feel art is resistance in that it is uh, conveying some sort of experience, conveying, conveying some sort of emotion you know, that ties to resistance. So an example of what I'm saying here for me is you know, um, the song Fight the Power, where it's like you have this sort of feeling, you know, this sort of general feeling of like, the necessity to fight back in some way. And so the artist puts that out there, they put it out, they explain how they feel, they use music as a form to express that. And then the listeners have that sort of, they're infected, if that's the right word, by the art that they receive. And they want to, in that same way, you know, act as the artist wanted to act when they made the work. That's a really smart point. I don't yeah. think mine's that smart, but I think um, I always think of art in any medium being a response to something that is happening in the world. I think art has always been a creative form of cultural commentary. So if you're looking at the medium like photography, that's literally trying to capture something that is happening, whether it's street photography or something that's more staged. The exigence of art, art is always trying to make an argument and it doesn't necessarily have to be explicitly political, but the creation of doing something creative to say something about society is inherently political in its form. And I think maybe running the MJLC, something I always think about is, this is just tied to my personal view of abolition being about building things up rather than tearing things down. To build things up, you have to be really creative. You have to imagine a world without harm. And I think the very process of creating art and being creative and questioning something and saying, okay, I see this, but how can I reconfigure this into something beautiful? Or I see something really ugly and how do I capture that ugliness? I think inherently the process of creativity has a lot of potential for resistance and potential for political engagement in and of itself. Oh, yeah, that was really good. Yeah, <laughs> thanks, I, Nate. I, I don't want to, the, the whole, my point was not as smart at all, was completely proven wrong. <laughs> I'm sorry. Seconds, so. Everyone in this round table is a genius. Like, let's just put that out there. <laughs> there we go. I don't know, not that much. I did have to go just look up what exigence means. Just <laughs> I'm not going to lie, same. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, then I guess we'll hand it off to you two then. Yeah. Um, I guess kind of going off what you said, I really do like the idea that, like, the arts is kind of a form of resistance in that, it kind of shows and expresses feelings that maybe you can't just convey through words or you can't convey just through maybe what you see happening. Like the form of art itself is bringing all of these senses together and just making you feel everything all at once. And I think that really helps to get a point across, especially in resistance. Yeah, I guess tying into that art is this kind of thing that you make outside of any requirement that you have you're not required to make it. You're not 
you don't have to do so just to kind of like make a living or make your way in life. It's something that you do because you have something that you want to say. And it, I feel in that way is, is an act of resistance to not create something that needs to be commodified. Although often it is, I think it's just, yeah. This is so embarrassing, but you know what I'm thinking of right now? Have you guys ever seen the animated movie Horton Hears a Who? The Dr. Seuss one? You know the part at the end where they're just chanting, we are here, we are here, we are here? (laughs) Like, that's what Cree's point reminds me of, where it's like, okay, to some extent that's tied to resistance as existence, but, like, music in and of itself, photography, poetry, art, it's all, like, incredibly emotional. Like, it's just almost declaring, like, despite, no matter what the subject matter is, there is emotion tied to us, and it's declaring, it is here, it is here, it is here. So, like, creating art for a purpose is obviously res- could be tied to resistance. You could be resisting social norms, subverting something, but also the creation of art, that just sort of emotional decoration of this. No one's asking me to do this, and I'm doing this because I, fe- I-, I feel like I need to. There's something so inherently beautiful and almost protest-like about it. So yeah. I-, I actually have, uh, based off of both those points right there, a question. Uh, Rhea, you said... Your work was the Spider-Man movie, the third one. No, ooh. The one with where he rehabilitates the villains. Spoiler alert. Apologies. But uh, I wanted to ask about the commodification, right? Because when we're looking right here, when we're looking at this work, Spider-Man's always been about being sort of, you know, marketable to the average person. He's the friendly neighborhood Spider-Man, even when he's you know, dimension hopping and fighting people made of, you know, sand and et cetera. But no matter how far away he gets, he's, he's marketed off relatability. And so I wonder how that plays into how something like rehabilitation is perceived. You know what I mean? Is, is it being exploited in this context, do you think? Yes and no. Um, from okay. a studio perspective, totally, you know. But I think there's also, if you're looking at the narrative of this a little bit, there's something really powerful. The fact that rehabilitation is relatable when that is not the norm in the status quo, but that is what is quote unquote being sold to the status quo, that means people know we want it, you know? So when rehabilitation isn't the norm, but that is what audiences are eating up and studios know that that's what audiences are eating up, I think it kind of demystifies this whole idea of oh, the system doesn't work because it's doing the best it can. The system knows what the people want. It's selling it to them. And that's problematic in and of itself. But I think in selling that argument, the existence of it, I think, shows its popularity, if that makes any sense. No, I like that point a lot. I think that makes a lot and of I sense. And I think that can be said about Barbie, too. I think talking about Barbie of... I, I, I have so many things to say about Barbie. You know, like, I was going to bring up Barbie. I'll let I you talk. Take, <laughs> no, take the mic. No, I mean, I think it goes to show, like, it does have a form of resistance and it's kind of interesting because it's like presented in a new way but also like completely like every other version we've seen like when you really think about it so this idea of does art have to be palatable like you can Mm -hmm. make this beautiful song that calls out the government or whatever but if no one it's like the whole if a tree falls in a forest no one like if you release a song and no one streams it is that still resistance and i'd say yes because i think it's it's twofold the creation of it is resistance and then the message it is spreading is ex- like exhibiting forms of resistance. So, like, I think Cree talked more about that creation aspect of it. Yeah, and I guess in the idea of like whether or not something's palatable too, I could see the benefit behind obviously sometimes making something palatable or just 
easily kind of understood and accepted by a general audience is good if you want to get if you have something you want to get out there and you want that to be widely received at the same time sometimes that can dilute the message of things and it's just not really possible to do that and maintain the same level of like it's it won't be as genuine i think so i think it's more of a that's maybe a case a case by case basis I don't know what you guys think about that. Well, on that note, with the Barbie movie, there is a case. Are we are we willing to spoil the Barbie movie right now? I yeah, I think yeah. so. Okay. It's, it's a bit, so, people have had yeah. enough time to see Barbie. Here we go. Here's a spoiler <laughs> alert. Barbie spoilers coming up. So Mattel, you know, initially had this whole um, they were they were portrayed in a sort of mocking way. You know, Will Ferrell, silly silly men at the top. But by the end of the movie, they are asking Barbie what she wants. They are, you know, at the very least seemingly reasonable, um, not not this evil company. I, I thought when I when they were coming over to Barbie Land that they were going to be the final antagonist, but they weren't. So uh, how do we feel about that sort of palatability? I mean, the movie had to get made, right? Yeah, and I there's a line in that movie that I think about a lot. It's like <clears throat> when we're talking about like that idea of making like regular sweatpant Barbie and then Will Ferrell immediately says no and then the assistant behind him is like, but that would sell really well. And he's like, never mind, that's cool. So it's almost <laughs> this idea that like feminism is allowed under the constraints of capitalism because it's going to sell. And that's a joke in the movie, but it almost says something about making Barbie as a whole. Like, we're making this low-key radical feminist movie because we know it's going to sell. Wow. Yeah. That's true. That's I, meta. <laughs> so many, I read a quote once, it was like, all the best stories in, I mean, especially movies because they're so big budget, but all the best stories are the ones that are never told because they're just not, they're not marketable. They'll never see that kind of budget that you get. So it, it is kind of interesting to see things like this where, making it palatable allows it to be made and seen. And I remember it was Margot Robbie in all these interviews and even she was like, when I read the script for this movie, I thought there's no way they're allowing us to make this. Like, yeah. have you have you seen yeah, that I clip of, that. like she says it in every, in, like so many interviews for this movie. I don't know. I really, it is interesting to think about the whole palatability of all of it, especially when you're kind of like, Yes, is it a little bit of a sellout? Absolutely. But at the same time, like, do we still need it? Is it better than nothing? Is it better than maybe those more specific stories that are, I don't know, less sought out by everyone? Is it worth it? I don't know. I think to answer that, can I nerd out about Shakespeare for a minute? Yeah. <laughs> okay, I'm going to transition. <laughs> I would argue that, would you guys, well, this depends. I feel like Barbie was, obviously there was moments of emotion in it, but I'd say like overall it was like a comedy, right? To some extent. Yes, yeah. it was okay. comedy. Yeah. So I'm going to talk about the medium of comedy. I'm not a big Shakespeare girly, but I'm in a Shakespeare class right now, and it's changed my world because it's about capitalism and Shakespeare and, like, mind-blown every Thursday, you know? Mm -hmm. But we talk about defining what is a comedy. And in Shakespeare time, Shakespeare's time, a comedy is a story, particularly a play, that begins with turbulence and ends with peace. And a tragedy begins with peace and ends with turbulence. So let's talk about the form of that, because even the form itself allows for both palatability, that peaceful, happy ending that you're packaging and selling. But also it has room to be kind of radical because comedy is defined by turbulence to peace, relying on satire and subversion. What makes comedy funny is that it's calling out some sort of status quo. It's calling out some norm. At the end, yeah, you know, packaging it in a happy ending and nothing really changes 
Shakespeare's comedies upheld the status quo. You had that little, that nice little bow at the end. It was nice and palatable. But the jokes and the digs made along the way are also subverting the status quo. So this was this idea of Shakespeare wrote his plays at a time where the market economy was just starting to boom in Europe. We were transitioning from feudalism to capitalism. And in a way, his happy endings sort of sold uh, what is a happy ending under the constraint of capitalism. Because I just read a comedy of errors, and the ending is like, there's these two brothers who are low-key, like, indentured servants, but the play ends with them, like, holding hands and, like, being so happy that they're, that they found one another. But, like, they're still indentured servants, and it's like, is that actually being happy? So he's selling this sort of palatable, this is what happiness looks like under capitalism, but at the same time, the joke of a comedy of errors is that these two brothers get beaten up constantly, and it's very violent, and I'm like... It's funny because it's so absurd, because it's subverting the norm that these brothers, like them getting beaten, is quote unquote okay. But it's not okay, which is why you're like awkwardly laughing. So it's this idea that comedy itself as a medium is uniquely positioned to uphold social norms while also challenging them. But for in order for a comedy to do well for an audience, it does have that little bow at the end. But it's almost like a a cynical happy ending than like an actual happy ending. Yeah, I think there's huh. absolutely a lot of pow- of power there. I think when it comes to uh, comedic absurdity being used as resistance, something that comes to mind for me is the satire of the Boondocks, and you know the main character. I don't know if you guys have seen it, but he, uh, Huey, the main character, consistently ends each episode. Or, you know, as a character, even beyond the end of the episode, he is cynical. He is a cynical character in a very absurd world. And so it, it definitely plays in the way that, that you were describing, where it's like they're making, not every episode ends in a happy way, but they're making these statements throughout the episodes. And it's kind of like Huey living in it, Huey getting sort of over overburdened by the world around him as it goes on. And, it, and it's a commentary, obviously, to the real world and how... There are crazy things happening all the time here, even if it's not as absurd in the individual moment as the boondocks. But we, as resistors, can f- become overburdened. We can feel overwhelmed. We can want to give up or retire. Huey actually retires the show. Uh, in the show, he's like a little eight-year-old uh, resist, uh, like abolitionist, and then he like says, "I'm done. I'm out of the game." Um, and I think it's this really interesting way to communicate you know, how we go about resistance in our daily lives, yeah. if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. No, I think going off, like, both of your points, I think what's interesting about satire is, like, kind of when I see it, it's like, like you said, it's very cynical, but it's almost like you can get away with it in comedy. Sure. Because it's a great way to just approach these challenges without getting too touchy, without getting maybe just, like, hate from, like, the media or from politicians and stuff like that by kind of being like oh it was a joke haha but not really like you know what I mean it I love the line get away with it it's like the Mm -hmm. form of comedy as an art form allows you to make those jabs and I think she's not here right now but Sophia Shashko shout out she was in study group and she talked a lot about like street photography and protest photography and how the medium of that allows you to capture directly what's happening so it's like different forms of art not only does art have a potential to resist, but forms of art, whether it's like a comedy or photography or a painting, like the form itself dictates its function or its capacity to resist. Yeah. Y'all are making a lot of really good points. I think we've talked a little bit about 
you know, other things, just kind of tying it into what we t- we brought up at the, at the beginning of the, the episode, the different mentions of different, like, arts and movies and music. How do you feel like those are kind of recontextualized in the light of the discussion so far? Like, the idea of whether or not resistance is kind of the intended purpose of what you chose or whether it was just embodying resistance inadvertently. I'm curious to hear your guys' thoughts on that. I can lead off. So for me, I chose the heart part five. And, you know, I, I spoke about how it's, it's Kendrick trying to resist, like, moving away from his roots. You know, we see a lot of rappers move away from their roots. Um, not to call any names, um, but I am going to call it a name, an Ice Cube. Um, <laughs> not to call Ice Cube out, but we're calling we're Ice Cube out today. We're calling Ice Cube out today. Ice Cube, if you're a listener, I apologize. I didn't mean it, but that said, Ice Cube's tuning in. Kendrick Lamar uh, wanted to make an entire piece about how he he feels detached from his roots, and it's it's really powerful to me because he uses the sample of Marvin Gaye's "I Want You," and he's saying, "I want the hood to want me back. Look what I've done for you," and so I, I think it was intentional. I think. I can't speak to how successful it was um, because I don't. I'm not really in the communication with Kendrick Lamar in the hood, but um, I, I think I think it definitely embodies, embodies intentional, thoughtful resistance for Kendrick. Shelby, you have two yeah. two songs to discuss. Yeah. I mean, like they're the same song, but like, the lyrics are just changed. Um, but. Basically, I don't really think it was per se intentional in the way we're talking about it in this context. Um, I think it was definitely more that like cynical satire type of intention where it was just, sorry, for context, I'm talking about we didn't start the fire. I did not lead that off, but that's okay. (laughs) Um, I just think it was trying to bring light to the fact that like a lot of things have happened over the years. um, And I guess it was just to bring awareness to that and then just the song kind of that plays off of it by Fall Out Boy is kind of continuing it. And I think they want to continue it for like generations to come. Um, and yeah, I think it's just, it's almost making, like Fall Out yeah. Boy is bringing that idea to a newer generation. Yeah, exactly. And I kind of hope like other artists keep it going. Like another wave decides to pick it up and like talk about what's happened over these years, stuff like that. I don't know. Yeah. I think there's a lot of interesting stuff. I brought up the one at the beginning. I'd also, I think it'd be interesting to talk about, there was this other song that I heard that kind of goes to the tune of, um, it's the, in the sweet by and by, I don't know if you guys, I don't know, I feel like it's, it's just a, I've, I got, I got kind of into like the origins of a lot of like American folk music and how it pertains to the idea of like unionization and the organization that was taking place in that like early 20th century time period. And I just remember reading this story about how they would be kind of out there trying to like tell people on the street how to organize and how to get people together. And the the bosses hired out the Salvation Army Band to come and play in the suite by and by to kind of play over them. And they took that melody and rewrote lyrics to it that continued to it, it was the same melodies. They basically just had a backing band for their kind of message and what they were trying to spread. And I thought that was just a really interesting way to kind of take art, which can be used for resistance or the way it can be used by anybody and just change it around and adapt it f- 
for your own purposes to get that message out. I like that a lot. Um, I think I think. Have you guys heard the song "We Are the World" for Africa oh, and yeah. 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 for Haiti? Mm-hmm. I. You know, obviously that was really cool, but little kid me did not have the emotional understanding to appreciate it. So when they made the one for Haiti and I saw Justin Bieber coming out and I was expecting like Michael Jackson and all the people from the original one, little kid me did not have a good time. (laughs) But I think that's a really good point about how we can kind of continue to develop these ideas and apply them to ourselves. I think that's awesome. I actually have a really interesting point, kind of bouncing off of that, Nate. Um, In my international studies class, we've been talking a lot about how you know, sometimes maybe like art can be used maybe for evil in this context. Um, Like if you guys have ever seen those (laughs) um, kind of, like you said, like all those popular artists all in one room singing like a Christmas song, talking about how we need to donate and we need to change, you know, the planet. And, you know, they have it's very like advertised, you know what I mean? It's very insincere. Yeah, I forget what they sang, but like the Gal Gal Gadot uh, COVID nineteen. <laughs> yeah. Oh my god! Imagine was. Yeah, yeah, imagine that was. Well, it's this. Oh, sorry, I'm mean, gonna cut you off. Nope, you're gonna, you're gonna sing. sing. Nope. <laughs> well, now I really want to sing. <laughs> but it's this idea of, and I think it's really topical with everything happening in the world right now. But it's like, oftentimes art that calls for peace. What does peace actually mean? Because calling for peace can sometimes just mean stopping current violence, but also calling for peace doesn't mean fixing the problem that led to a lack of peace. It just means, like, so it's very much like, is it fixing the root problem or is it just calling for things to go back the way they were? It's very, Mm -hmm. like, sometimes saying, I want peace is very, let's go status quo. Or calling for peace means, hey, what's happening now is, like, an offshoot or like not normal and we're calling for peace and going back to normal but it's like was normal ever okay to begin with if we're here now and I feel like sometimes with big artists doing songs quote-unquote that call for peace but like are not specific at all by what they Mm -hmm. mean is kind of that whole when we talk about commodifying a message that upholds the status quo yeah yeah I think now that I'm remembering it, the video we specifically watched was, I think the song was called like, Do They Know It's Christmas? And they're talking about children in Africa. Um, I'm gonna go out on a limb and say they probably aren't celebrating Christmas per se, at least a majority, so. (laughs) Yeah, so it's, it's like this idea that art can, well one, it's like art has a lot of power to bring attention to issues. Like there's one obviously art, art itself, the creation of art is resistance, but the subject matter of art can draw a lot of attention towards resistance movements, or sometimes when it's not done well, it can kind of, like you said, like muddle it almost. So there's a lot of responsibility as an artist, especially when you have an audience. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think it's interesting too. Things like that, like we can look at them and assume it's kind of, it's probably performative, it's probably some that isn't really inciting that much change as art it's kind of it seems disingenuine but it still kind of succeeds in that goal of art in eliciting response whether or not that was the intention at all we're still in here talking about it and it still had an effect which I think just speaks to the you know the power that music and art can have and the way that all these things work I mean backtracking a tiny bit I know the three of you brought up songs and maybe it's like the English major in me do you have like a specific lyric that you're like this lyric specifically in the song that I picked like is so resistance 
had to put you on the spot. In the song that I picked, I feel I I gave the lyric that stuck out to me. I said already. Uh, if anyone else uh, has anything other, or I can, I can go or a different song, just like. Sp- yes. Okay. So there is a a song by Bushwick Bill that's like it's it's intentionally to an end extreme of of anger. Uh, against against the system, uh, and in that song, he he says the lyric, um, "Will will a a black person ever go for that?" And then it's like, "Hell no, that gotta go," and um, it's sort of like a call to action there, uh, and that to me really. Uh, at the very least, when I heard that song for the first time, I I, I was sort of yelling that in my car, like you know, I was I was all <laughs> pumped up, all riled, ready, um, and then the song ends and I, I calm down a bit. But to me, that's what sticks out when when I hear the question you ask. Yeah, I mean, I picked a movie, but one of a song I always think to is "Revolution" by Van a Van Billiam and First Aid Kit, and it's just I love the chorus. It's "I want a revolution, you want a short solution, we can never see eye to eye." You wanted retribution. I came to the same conclusion. Of course, it's a story as old as time. I hear you crying in the other room. And I just like, I'm like, damn, that's like poetic. Yeah, <laughs> I absolutely had a little moment there myself hearing that. That's yeah. Ugh. Shelby, do you have one? Um, kind of. I don't know. It's not as like resistance, but like just in general. Um, there's a line, and I think my tears ricochet by Taylor Swift, where she says like. Um, I didn't have it in myself to go with grace. And it kind of reminded me of your song and the lyric, just the idea that, like, sometimes you can't just go in peace. I love Um, feminine rage in songs. Right? You know, sometimes you just, yeah, you have to let it out. Yeah, I guess maybe this is backtracking a bit to the idea of something being performative. But just in general, the idea of a performance. We talked about it in study group yesterday. Like, artistic performances, how do you all define what a performance is, like how does that relate to art and action? So I was actually kind of thinking about this a little on the way over. Um, I think it's interesting because I think a performance can completely change the meaning of the original art piece, Um, not like in a negative way at all, but like it can almost add to it. I think with the visuals, I think maybe if they talk about the performance ahead of time or say like, hey, this is what I originally meant, but now it kind of feels like this to me or it can relate to this event, you know. I think it just, you can add more information on top of the original art form. Yeah, I think in that idea about the the live performance of something adding to it or changing it to it, you, could, you always get the occasional one, you know, with music and more options to produce in studio these days. Sometimes you'll hear a performer on stage that you've heard them on you know streaming or on the radio before and it's just it's like oh I don't like either it just doesn't affect you as much or it affects you differently and I think there is capacity for sometimes things just whether it's good or bad in your own mind it is it's different there's some people where like you can go through and listen to artists as they change but you can still see them live and it just it's still it still hits the same it's still really that live performance is integral, I think, to, to any art. I'm thinking a lot about like set design, at least for concerts. Like, I just sometimes like even the visuals in the background, because sometimes 
you'll listen to a song and then have you read that moment where you're like bopping along to a song and you like look up what the lyrics mean you go on genius and you're like oh my god this is what the song is about <laughs> i think set design that reflects that can be incredibly powerful on that note i recently went to see wu-tang and nas perform in the united center in chicago and they're they're up there now they're getting up there in age i did not think that they were going to be able to deliver a concert that really encapsulated the energy of their songs well because you know their songs are very high octane very energetic and i could not have been more wrong it was it was just a phenomenal concert i mean the the lights they had you know they they had like these changing screens behind them the whole time that really gave this this upbeat energy um to ghostface i don't know if any of the listeners here are wu-tang <laughs> listeners uh but he was phenomenal he came on stage and he just took command and i was like i was low-key fangirling about it i'm not gonna lie i was really hype i was moving around and I just, I was, I was absolutely astounded to see how, how the live performance hit me as though I had heard that song for the first time. No, I, that's such a powerful feeling when that happens. I mean, I'm not the most well-versed in what I'm about to say next, but I know it's something we did talk about in Steady Group. But I know everyone in this room is, like, super into music, which is awesome. But, like, I, I know I me- we mentioned plays earlier, but, like, what about performance art? Or like even when you make a stand, like I feel like that's very more directly tied to resistance where oftentimes a lot of actions that are done as actions of direct protest are done, not under the guise of performance art, but performance art is the medium that is used to directly protest things. I know that was something that was discussed for a while yesterday. Yeah, I think performance art as a concept ties into, I think something we don't usually associate with visual art is the impermanence of it and the impermanence of art adds such a this special kind of veneer to it that you can't really capture like if you look at a painting it's always going to be there it's always going to be what it is and performance art just you can record it but seeing it i guess ties into that like live performance aspect or the same thing with um if you have an artist as they age and their live performances change and grow in different ways, it is it is different from seeing a, a, a painting that sticks around, I guess. Kree's thing just reminded me of something, and I, I wish I knew what it was called so someone, if they are interested, could be inclined to look it up after. <laughs> there is this piece of art, and it's in a museum, and it's this, it's this mechanical arm, and it has like a blade at the bottom, I've okay, seen that. Shelby, yep. what I'm talking I about. Know okay, what you're okay. talking about. <laughs> I'm obsessed. Okay, so it's it's so cool. It's this it's this white floor, right? And it has a mechanical arm, and out of the the bottom of the floor, there's a circle, and there's like this substance that's dyed to look like blood, coming out of the floor. But it's like this thick viscous. It's like oil or something, mm. and it looks like blood. And basically, um, there is so blood's coming out of the floor. There's a crane almost. This arm. And what the arm does is it scrapes the blood that's on the floor back down into the hole. But, and it keeps doing that. But then what's so cool about the piece, like Cree was talking about temporality, it can't last forever because whatever that liquid substance is, it's rusting the blade. So after a while, the piece is going to stop moving and it's already getting slower and it's been creaky and rusty. And in my lifetime, I just want to go see it before it stops moving forever. But it's supposed to like represent people like working till their death or like how 
how we sustain ourselves is what's killing us. Or you can interpret it in a lot of different ways. But it's just like this crane, this futile task of trying to collect its own blood, and that's what's going to kill it. Right? It's, yeah, it's, it's I sad. have seen that. Okay, that wait. That is okay. my, like, fa- I don't know That's my called. Roman Empire. Like, oh, my <laughs> gosh, absolutely. That's, like, my favorite piece. I, I learned about it in my high school humanities class, and I did a whole little research project on it. I had a whole little whiteboard for it. Uh, oh but I, it's, it's just so interesting. I wonder when it's going to stop moving. It's, is there, like, a predicted date? I just Googled it. So the piece is called Can't Help Myself. And it was put on split display in 2019 in Venice. Because the, ru- the rust is noticeable now, yeah. Yeah, and it's, like, programmed to, like, it can't help itself. Oh, that's so cool. So the the blood goo, you're saying, like, it causes it to rust also or just? Yeah, so it's, like, huh. um, for context, everyone who's listening, whoever, we have a picture pulled up right now. <laughs> but basically, yeah, it's just, like, this crane is eventually going to stop based on what it's doing yeah yeah that, that's awesome yeah whoever thought of that that they that's some crazy stuff yeah that's yeah. no, yeah no i think modern art in general is a very great medium for resistance um i went to a modern art museum recently in chicago with my sister and just looking at the things people came up with like everything you looked at was just unsettling but like in a way that kind of like drew you in similar to what we were just looking at. Like you just can't look away from it. Yeah, yeah. I was, was, was this the Contemporary Art Museum in Chicago? Yeah. Yep. So the other, other editor in chief of the MJLC and I went in August and we found this exhibit called Sound Suits by Nick Cave. And it was this really cool exhibit of mannequins who were dressed up in like bells and whistles and things that were loud. And it was meant to be like colorful sound suits that protect the lives of black children and it was just this like beautiful like mannequins that were covered in buttons and, and bells and whistles and I just thought it was so incredibly powerful does anybody have any other final notes or points before we wrap up well I, if you're listening I hope we've given you a couple art pieces or songs or things to just check out but uh, before we conclude the episode I just wanted to come back to the uh, the MJLC for a minute as an arts magazine we we're kind of ourselves a curation of outside art and staff written work I'd love to turn to our editor-in-chief to make a note about the MJLC's positionality as like a resistance effort, specifically the uh, arts magazine. Yeah, um, I had a meeting with our advisor. Um, Shout out Professor Ingrid Darren. You've changed my life. Um, But I had a meeting with her this morning, and we were just talking about, as a publication, how best can we keep resisting? Because it's like, at the end of the day, we're just a student-run RSO. We're just a magazine. And there's so many things that we're passionate about, but it's like, what's our positionality as a magazine? Like, what can we do? And obviously there's a lot, but also it's recognizing the limits of the constraint of the form. Like we talked about how the form of comedy has certain constraints. So it's like, we can do anything we want, but within the framework of a magazine. And she talked a lot about how the purpose of a magazine when we made this was to reach more people regarding abolition but featuring more voices, so diversifying the conversation of abolition. And I think this podcast is like a natural extension of that. But this is a quote, and I can't take credit from it. It's Ingrid's. But she said, as a magazine, you are distilling a clear narrative, finding a story from a tangled mess of constant sociopolitical events. So she was like, when protests are happening, even resistance movements 
they lack that temporality, right? You protest, the protest happens, the protest is over, the news cycle moves on to the next thing. And whether the protest is successful or not can lead to more, but there is kind of this cycle of resistance. But I think what art does, and not all art, but I think what a magazine does is capture a story in print forever. And there's something really powerful in capturing that story and saying, it's like Horton Hears a Who again, I exist, I exist, exist, I remember, I didn't forget this. And there's people behind these protests. I think as a magazine tied to art, we're very focused in the people behind the protest, the person behind the painting. At the same time, I think it's important to remember the second we publish something as a form of print medium, it's immediately out of date, right? The next thing is happening. And I know that's something our staff is currently struggling with right now. I'm going to shout them both out. Um, we have two amazing staff writers. Um, um, well, one is our graphic and layout designer, Emily, who's doing a piece on the NHL and banning like the rainbow tape and hockey. And our other amazing academic editor, Quinn, is doing a piece on the block cop city movement in Atlanta. And what they're both struggling with is they're writing these pieces and new information's coming out every day. And they're kind of like, we have a deadline to get this magazine out. But at the same time, they want the information to be up to date. So they're both like rewriting their piece basically every day. But at, after a certain point, we have to stop and we have to print, you know. But I, I don't think that means stopping the movement. And this is, again, quoting Ingrid. Twitter can give you day-to-day up-to-date events. If you want to follow what's happening in hockey and Block Cup City, and there are other forms of media that can keep you up-to-date constantly because you can post something new on Twitter or on the Internet forever. But as a print medium, our limitation is we can't do that but we can capture the story behind it. And I think that's really powerful. And it's kind of interesting to consider our own limitations. But long story short, making art itself is abolitionist. Creativity is imagining the possibility of care. And I think that's really cool. Thank you, Rhea. And uh, thank you to our amazing study group members who came to talk today. Yeah, yeah uh, thank, thank you to all our listeners. Thank you to everybody who spoke today. And see you all next time.